0: So I would invite you, if you would, to uh, open your Bibles to John chapter 3. I tell you what, I love kids, don't you? How is it hard not to... What kind of person doesn't love kids? But... um, I can understand you loving them, somebody else's, but sometimes yours are harder. But I came in this morning to the office a bit scattered, as is the case sometimes for me on Sunday mornings, and um, on my door are these little sticky notes, um, little pink sticky notes, couldn't miss them. Pastor Frank, did you bring these up here for me this morning? Okay, you had them too. So apparently they were everywhere. Um, but they're notes written from uh, the kids, some group of kids in children's department somewhere. And they're notes of encouragement to the pastors. And um, uh, one of them says, thank you for preaching from the word. Uh, one of them says, oh, this is great. Uh, it says, he prays good. P-R-A-S-E. He prays good. Um, long prayers, it says after that. Uh, true. Brutal in their honesty, true, too, aren't they? Uh, And I love this one particularly. Pastor Greg, you talk proper English unlike other pastors. I don't know. It's good to know, though. It could be, I could say, go take a class somewhere and learn to speak. That would be the opposite of encouragement. So maybe they just withheld those kinds of things. Uh, What a blessing. Uh, Thankful to those who, you know, every week when we are uh, in here enjoying singing praise to God together, enjoying opening up God's word and studying together, uh, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that there's always a good dozen or more folks who are back there outside those doors uh, serving our kids and teaching them to do things like this, to think about encouragement, who are making a real sacrifice, um, not being able to be in here and be a part of what's going on. Uh, in order to invest in our kids and uh, we we should um, we should applaud them and pat them on the back more often than we do and I hope that you'll take the time when you find people who uh, do that or maybe when you just go pick up your kids back there today to to thank them for their service and uh, uh, just for Jenny's sake I'll also go ahead and say we could use some more of you making that sacrifice by the way Um, great blessing we have to have an overflowing children's department and nursery right um, so we could always use help in that. The Lord gives special blessings, I think, to people who, who serve in that area. Um, anyhow, John chapter 3. Uh, we have been for a few weeks looking at John chapter 3. I introduced um, the beginning of it several weeks back. Pastor Frank has, in the last two weeks, been mining John three sixteen. Uh, such a familiar passage, but such a rich passage. And really to the end of the chapter here... Um, uh, there, are, there are so many uh, golden nuggets of truth to, to mine. We could extend this out a bit, but I'm going to try this morning uh, to pick up where Pastor Frank left off at um, the end of verse 17 and, 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 and just kind of hit the highlights to the end of verse 21 and see if we can uh, wrap up this, 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 this section. And it's important that we wrap it up, uh, and it's important that we at least spend another week on it because it's just so rich. The truths that are expounded in this text are so critical to your faith. They're so critical to my faith. They're so critical uh, because they address what is foundational to saving faith. They, 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 they address for us the most important thing that could be addressed. How is it that a person is saved? What does it take to be a Christian? What is, it, what is the difference between the person who at the end of their life is ultimately judged guilty and condemned and the person who at the end of their life is acquitted of their sins and granted eternal life. There's no more foundational question for human life and for the human mind to consider than that question. What is the difference between the two? And how is it that I can, first of all, make sure that I'm in the right category? And then how, how is it that I can have some sort of confidence in living my imperfect Christian faith moving forward that I remain in that place? So that when I look to the end of my life and ultimately my death... I can do so with with confidence, knowing where I stand with God and knowing on what basis I stand there. Nothing more important than that. We can talk about all sorts of bits of theology. We can parse out difficult uh, passages and we can come to conclusions about hard things. But really the hard things are unimportant if you don't get the basic things. And there's nothing more basic than this. And yet nothing more critical for us to fully and completely grasp. And so this morning, I sense that my job is to finish out this text and make sure that when we walk out of this place, we understand these things. And So that's what we're after this morning. I'm going to read for you the whole chunk here, John three sixteen through 21. And, um, and then we'll start making our way through. John writes, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son... That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. For whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in Him is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed But whoever does what is true comes to the light So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God What a great text with so much truth for us in case you haven't been tracking with us, the whole context of this chapter begins with John recording for us an encounter between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus uh, was a very wealthy religious leader, uh, perhaps the wealthiest religious leader in all of the group of Pharisees who were the religious leaders of Israel of his day. The, the most popular faith of the day in Israel was Judaism. Everybody was Jewish, and these were the Jewish leaders, and, and that was that was. I mean, these were the highest of the high as far as... Religiously educated and they were the highest of the highest as far as moral uh, examples for the people And so this man is at the top of the totem pole so to speak and he comes to jesus by night And you know jesus has done some things that have gotten their attention like you know Turning everything over in the temple when he arrives and so forth And so they're curious about him and they they want to know more So nicodemus comes as a representative of the group and at night and he and he comes to jesus And he asks him a very simple question at the beginning he says back in verse uh, 2, a Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things, uh, these signs that you do, unless God is with him. So Jesus, you know, we know there's something special about you, man. We know that. I mean, nobody could do the stuff you do apart from that. And, and really, this is a veiled sort of of a... Of a, of a Uh, of a probe for more information nicodemus and these pharisees they want to know more about jesus they want some idea who this guy is who's turning everything upside down is he a threat is he not who is he and so he comes that's what he's really after and he comes with some open flattery at the beginning jesus sees right through all that and he doesn't even answer nicodemus question he goes right to the heart of the most important question that nicodemus could possibly answer and perhaps the thing that he was truly wondering and that is how can a man be made right with his god And Jesus goes right to that question and he says to him, Nicodemus, here's what you need to know. You know, it doesn't matter who I am. What matters is this. You must be born again. You want to know how to be right with God? Be born again. Something has to happen to you over which you have absolutely no control. And speaking to a man who is who has, 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 has lived his whole life under a system that says, in order to be right with God, you have to keep the works of the law. You have to do A, B, C, D, E, and subheading A, B, C, D, and E under every heading A, B, C, and D. You've got to keep the law. You've got to do all these righteous works. And if you obey, if you do all of these things, you'll be right with God. He's embraced this. He's believed this. He's taught other people this. He's been a leader in teaching that theology. And Jesus says to him, first thing out of his mouth, everything that you've believed and everything that you taught is foolish and you need, to, you need to die to it and be born all over again if you want to be made right with God. And it rocks this man to the core of who he is as a human being and as a religious leader. And that sets in motion this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus that takes us really through the chapter, uh, mostly, as Pastor Frank pointed out a couple weeks ago, uh, it's possible that verses 16 through 21 uh, are, are not the actual words of Jesus in the midst of this conversation with Nicodemus. But perhaps when you get to that point, John is just expounding on the conversation and clarifying some things and, um, and, and moving from there. But in either case, it really doesn't make any difference. Um, it's here for us and the truth is the same. But this is the context, Jesus and Nicodemus. And the subject doesn't change regardless of who the speaker is. Can I just say it that way? Um, the subject doesn't change, and it all relates back to this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus about how a man has, been, has, has to be made right with his God. So at the beginning, we talked about this idea that you must be born again. You need to be regenerated. God has to do something in you and to you that you, in, to, to which you don't contribute anything. It's like being born uh, physically. You don't do anything to, to birth yourself physically. Others do all the work, right, ladies? Um, I, come on, wake up here, people. Um, Spiritually, it's the same. You don't do anything to birth yourself. You're born again by an outside source. It has to happen to you. The only thing you can do, he tells us, by giving this Old Testament illustration, is look, look to Christ for it. And that takes us to verse 16 that Pastor Frank brought us to the last couple of weeks. God so loved the world, He gave His only Son this this beautiful, incredible love of God that motivates him to sacrifice his very own son in order that he might save those who have rebelled against him. Remarkable. So that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish, but have eternal, everlasting life. Remarkable, remarkable truths. And as we pick up with verse 18 through 21, we're going to just kind of couch it this way. Jesus or John, depending on how you see this, tells us about the most important thing you could ever do. The most important thing I could ever do. And then he tells us on the heels of that about the worst sin you could ever commit. And the worst sin that I could ever commit. So those are the two things we're going to grapple with this morning. The the most important thing that we could ever do, and the worst possible sin we could ever commit. So when we leave here today, I hope you understand those things. The most important thing for you to do, and the worst thing you could ever do. Okay, And everything else is going to fit somewhere in between there, right? It's the most important thing you could ever do. We get this at the very beginning of verse 18. What does John tell us here? Whoever believes in him is what? Not condemned. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Now this sounds an awful lot like what we saw in verse 16, right? If you put the two together, whoever believes in him should not what? Perish, that's the same as being condemned, isn't it? Perish, condemn, same thing. So we're elaborating on the same thing here. This idea that whoever believes in Him, that's Jesus, is not condemned or doesn't perish. What is that most important thing that you could ever do? Believe in the Lord Jesus. That's the most important thing you could ever do. It's the most important thing any human being could ever do. Believe in Jesus Christ. There's nothing more important than that. There's no decision you make that's more important than that. There's no action that you could ever engage in in your life that's more critical than that. The most important foundational thing for every human being to do is to believe in Jesus Christ. And if you haven't done that this morning, then you've missed the most important thing, and you need to get it this morning. You say, why is that the most important thing? Because eternal blessing or eternal condemnation hangs in the balance on whether or not you do it. Isn't that what he says? This word here, condemned, is a word that means judged guilty or sentenced. Another way you could say this is it is damned. The person who believes in Jesus is not damned to eternal hell. Is not judged and sentenced and committed to eternal destruction. There is a way for sinful, rebellious human beings to not be condemned. That is great news, isn't it? Best news ever. Sinful human beings who have rebelled in various ways against their Creator and who have, have earned for themselves eternal damnation and eternal condemnation before a just God who would be completely just in sending every one of them there. In that sort of a context, there is still yet a way to avoid condemnation. There's a way to not be eternally destroyed. It's to believe in Jesus. To believe in jesus this is what rocked nicodemus to the core he did not understand this he he and every other jew believed that when messiah came what he was going to do first off is judge the nations and condemn them that's what he thought was going to happen and then he was going to exalt his people the jews that's what he thought and jesus is saying to him here and to us That there's a way to not be condemned. And the way to not be condemned is whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. No, Nicodemus, the plan is not God's going to come and judge all the people that you hate and exalt you. Here's what's going to happen. The ones who are going to not be condemned are anyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the ones who are going to be judged and condemned are those who don't. Nicodemus could not get this. The exact opposite of what he thought was going to happen actually happened. The Messiah did come. And Israel rejected him. And instead of judging all the nations, he ended up doing what? Judging them. It's a remarkable statement. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. The most important thing you could ever do is believe in Jesus. And the reason it's remarkable is it's remarkable because of its breadth and because of its simplicity. I mean, the first word gives us the breadth. Whoever believes. Whoever. Whoever believes. Not just Jews, but whoever. Romans, Egyptians, Africans, Asians, people from every tribe, nation, tongue, any continent. Whoever. Anyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ is not condemned it doesn't matter who they are the way of salvation is open to anyone who believes the old barriers of race and religion are destroyed it's what he's trying to say to nicodemus these things don't matter it's not about race it's not about religion it's not about anything that identifies you apart from someone else it's all about whoever believes it's that broad it doesn't matter how smart you are or how unintelligent you are. It doesn't matter how well-educated you are or poorly educated. It doesn't matter how rich you are or how poor you are, how tall or short, skinny or not skinny or whatever it is. There's nothing. It's open to whoever. Whoever. Whoever believes. The whole world. Anyone from any part of the world who believes in the Lord Jesus is not condemned, will not perish. Perish. John MacArthur says it this way. He says the free offer of the gospel, get this, is broad enough to include the worst sinner who believes and it's narrow enough to exclude the most moral religious unbeliever. It's true, isn't it? It's broad enough to include the worst sinner in the world who believes and it's narrow enough to exclude the most moral, good, religious person who doesn't. Nicodemus, it's not about your religion. It's not about your works. It's about believing. And whoever believes will not perish, will not be condemned. That's the bottom line. And that's broad. That means if you're here in this place today, you are a potential candidate for that category of whoever. Because you qualify. You're a person, right? So far as I can tell, everyone in here is a person. Whoever believes, if you will believe this morning, if you will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, you will not be condemned. Guaranteed on the authority of God's word, you will not perish. You will have eternal life. That's what it says. Whoever believes. It's also remarkable in its simplicity, isn't it? It's not a complicated thing, is it? To believe. It's not complicated. There's not a bunch of hoops to jump through. There's not a big manual of, of rules that you have to learn in order to achieve somehow this eternal life. It, it, it's not that complicated. It's rather simple to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no hoops to jump through. There's no meticulous law keeping. It's basic. It's simple. You don't work for it. You don't earn it. You don't compete with other people for it. You simply choose to do it. To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So whoever believes. There's a note here that's important. It's important because we miss it this word translated uh, believes here and the Greek is in the present tense and the Greek present tense always indicates for us continuous action in the present okay and we don't always get that in the English translation continuous action in the present so a more literal understanding of this would be whoever is believing whoever is continuing to believe will not be condemned do you see the difference here? The idea is not pointing somewhere backwards into the past to some act that's happened before. The issue here is what's going on right now. He's saying to, to Nicodemus and to whoever else will listen and read it that if you want to know which people are going... Uh, to, to not be condemned, it's whoever believes, whoever is believing, whoever is continuing to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is the person who won't be condemned. The reason I point that out to you is because often I talk to people about their faith and where they stand with the Lord. And I ask them, you know, they'll sometimes tell me, yeah, I'm a Christian. And I'll say, well, on what basis do you do you base that? How do you know you're a Christian? If somebody were to ask you, you know, what what on what basis do you have that confidence? And you know, a, a huge portion of the time, in that question... In that conversation, they will point backwards to something way back in the past. Well, there was a time in which such and such happened in my life. And in those conversations, I always try to redirect back to the present. Because John 3.16 and John 3.18 teaches a present reality. It doesn't teach a past event. Do you see the difference? Nod your head if you do. He's saying, whoever is believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, whoever is right now continuing to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, will not be condemned. You want to know if you're, if, you're, if you're one of that category? What's going on right now? Are you believing in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you believe in Him? Right now, today, this moment. If you do, if you are you will not be condemned. You will not perish. We don't need to look backwards for confidence in our faith. We need to look right now in the mirror, is what John is saying to us. And so, it's simple. Believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if it's simple, we need to, we need to break out this word believe a little bit. We need to define it because in our language, we don't always get the full nuance of this thing, is the way John means it. Now, John uses this word all the time, and the word has, can have various shades of meaning. So we need to know what John meant when he wrote it. Because it's important for us to understand. He uses, just in this passage, he uses this term, believes. He uses it seven times in just one little section here. So it's a critical term for him. And it's critical because it's the primary thing that matters when it comes to being saved. Believing is the issue, not something else. So what is, it, what is this, this saving belief? Or another word for this would be saving faith. Belief, faith, John means the same thing here what is this kind of belief that saves what does it mean to be believing well it means at least three things uh, there's a there's a cognitive part of this okay and when you use the word cognitive in case you don't use that word often I don't usually it just works right now it just means it's there's a mental part of it part of think factual part of it there are some things that are true that you need to embrace some truths that need to be mentally believed you need to you need to believe the truth about who Jesus is. He's revealed Himself to us in His Word. So when I say you need to believe in Jesus, it starts with the fact that you need to believe the truths about Him. You need to believe He is who He said He is. He is who the Bible reveals Him to be. He is the God of all the universe who stepped out of heaven and stepped into human flesh, who walked among men, lived a perfect, sinless life, who ultimately was, was crucified on a cross, dying as, a sowning, as an atoning sacrifice for your sins, he arose three days later from the grave. He's exalted to the right hand of the Father where He rules all things right now. You need to believe those things about Him. You need to cognitively say, yes, those things are true, and I believe that. I believe that. It starts at this place. You to believe He is who He says He is. But that's not all. You see, there are people who believe those things who are not believers. Because the word means more than cognitive belief. And John means more than cognitive belief. He means something beyond that. He means cognitive belief, but he also means a confident trust. It's more than just believing facts. It involves tr- trusting, or better yet, entrusting yourself to him. And, and we get this from the root meaning of this word and also the way John says it here. He says whoever is believing in him, the word translated in is, would be better translated into. Whoever is believing into Jesus... That's more than just believing the facts about Him. It's believing into Him. It's, 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 it's hard for us to grasp in English, but it's, it's entrusting ourselves to Him. It means trust. It means looking to Him as our only hope, trusting Him to save us apart from anything else that we could ever do to ourselves. I need a chair. Maybe that'll help. I'm not tired already. Here. All right, so let me illustrate this for a moment with a chair. All right, this blue chair, it's a nice blue chair, too. They're comfy, aren't they? I know that because you fall asleep sometimes. Um, we give you hard chairs, they'll stay awake, wouldn't they, Pastor Frank? All right, I can look at this chair and I can say, I can say, I believe that chair will hold my weight, right? I can look at this chair, it looks pretty sturdy, and I can believe that it will hold my weight. I can tell you, I believe this chair will hold my weight, okay? But that's a different thing than doing this, Right? Now what am I doing? Besides sitting, that's obvious. Yeah, I've moved from belief to trust, right? I've now gone from belief to trust. I'm now entrusting myself to this chair. I am putting my, myself at its disposal. If it doesn't hold up its into the bargain, well, you're going to have something to laugh about this morning, right? It's the difference between belief and trust. Belief says I believe it, but I'm not willing to entrust Entrusting says, I'm willing to put the full weight of who I am in it and believe it's going to hold up its end of the deal. It's the same with Jesus Christ. When John says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, it means believe the truth about Him from afar, but He also means to prove that belief by entrusting your, the full weight of your spiritual well-being into Him, trusting that He's going to hold you up. And if He doesn't, there is no other resource. That's what it means to trust in Him. That's what I mean when I say confident trust. And I guess you could say there's a third thing, committed obedience. The idea that that there's this inevitable result. We see this from John. He gets it a little later in this chapter, in verse 36. um, Chapter 3, verse 36, he says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And then he goes on to say, Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. So he equates... He equates believing with obeying or not believing with not obeying. So the idea here is this. When a person believes cognitively in the Lord Jesus Christ and he entrusts the full weight of his spiritual well-being in the Lord Jesus Christ, the inevitable result is is a life of committed obedience that verifies those things are true. Does that make sense? It's backwards from what Nicodemus thought. Nicodemus thought that this was the other way around, that you live a life of committed obedience and that earns you Your way into the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying, no, Nicodemus, you've got it all upside down. You've got to be born again, and then you've got to believe. You've got to believe the truth. You've got to entrust yourself to the Son of Man. And the result of that then becomes a life of obedience, which verifies the validity of your faith. This is all wrapped up in this term, believe. You want to know what it means to be a Christian, to not be condemned, to not perish? It means this believe in your mind the truth about Jesus Christ affirm it say it's true i believe it i embrace it and trust the full weight of your spiritual well-being to him alone apart from any works that you could ever accomplish or anybody else and then walk that out in your life in obedience as a verification that those two things are true that's what it means to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ those are the people who don't perish who are not condemned those who believe what a believer is. But you need to know it's not just belief in general. It's a specific kind of belief, isn't it? It's belief what? In or into the Lord Jesus Christ. In Him. It's belief in Him. It's not belief in general or faith in general that saves us. It's a particular kind of faith. It's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that saves. It's believing in Him. So Christmas, um, this past Christmas, 2013, I've got a little boy now, and Christmas is a whole lot of fun when you have kids. I'll tell you that. And uh, so his big Christmas present this year was Xbox 360. And he likes video games. So he has some competency for these things. And so uh, we got him that. And there's a particular kind that has this thing called a connect. And it's just like basically a little sensor you put up in front of the TV. It can see you, what you're doing. And there are games designed um, so that, you know, what's going on, on the screen, you act and you run and you throw things and you fight and you do whatever. And it sees you. And so you can move around and play the games. Do you get the point? Um, so so he's, you know, I'm thinking through this. I like, I want to encourage what he likes. He likes those things. But I don't want him just sitting on the couch all the time, popping chips and, you know, doing this all day. I want to move around a little bit, get some exercise. So we got the one with that. And there are all kinds of games for that thing. Um, And, you know, one of the other things that I know about my boy is that he loves to dance. He just does it for fun. I mean, he wouldn't do it for you if I brought him up here right now. But, you know, he'll just walk through the kitchen, and he'll just start cutting a boogie right there in the the kitchen. Say, hey, Dad, look, and he'll just start going. And it's great. He's actually good at it. And so as I was thinking through the shopping for Christmas, I ran across, I was looking for games for his new system. And I ran across this game called Just Dance Disney. I thought, well oh, he'll love that. He likes to dance. He's seen a lot of Disney movies. And it would get him moving and burning some calories and dancing. He'll love that. I think it'll be great. And so I got it for him. And he does love it. But there was one thing that never dawned on me at any point along the way in the whole thought process before, during, or after purchasing that game. And it came crashing home to me in, in an instant when he started playing the game for the first time. And here's the reality that I totally overlooked. There is a two-player mode on that game. So instantly, he starts playing the game. And he loves it. And he starts. It took a little bit of coercion, but once he played it the first time, he was all about, you know... And, 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 and basically... Like, can we make the video? Do you think we can make this? I'm going to show you what it looks like. So, you, so those of you who don't have kids, you, you know how this game works. We're going to try and play a video clip here that I threw on these guys in the booth at the very last second. And, and if it works, it'll work. So basically, how this thing works, will it play? Okay, well, if it doesn't, then you can see the picture. There's Disney songs playing, and these kids come out, and they dance, and they do all these moves. And your job, playing the game, is to watch them and mimic their moves. And you get points for how many of the moves you get correct. Okay? The little sensor thing, you know, it looks at you and it watches you. And, and it, and it, and it, and it gets, oh, see, it's restricted from playback. Watch on YouTube. Watch it when you get home. But trust me, the sensor watches you and it moves and you dance in front of this thing and you get points for how many of the moves you get Right? And so uh, probably the NSA is watching you, too, and whoever else, I don't know. There's some guy at the NSA just laughing his head off at people watching, playing this game. But it never dawned on me. There was this two-player mode, and he starts playing, and he says, Hey, Dad, come play with me. And it's in that moment that I am just overcome with abject fear. Because, you see, at at my son's age, he still thinks I'm Superman. He still thinks, I can do anything. I can jump tall buildings. I can stop a moving train with my hands. I can do anything. And I love that he thinks that about me right now, because I know that will end probably sooner rather than later. But he still thinks that I can do anything. And I'm in that moment thinking, oh, man, he's five. I don't want to burst that bubble already. I'm thinking, how do I tell my son that he has the most rhythmically challenged father on the planet? That this would be a disaster if I get in, in this game and start playing. Because I have no rhythm and I can't dance. And I don't want the NSA to see that or anyone else. End up on YouTube or something. Um, so I'm just struck with fear. What am I going to do? And and I, I said, son, yeah, I don't think so. You, you, I, Dad's having fun watching you do this. I don't think I'd be very good at this game. You know, I'm trying every little thing I can. And if you know my son, he's tenacious. You know, he just doesn't take the simple answers. He's like, no, dad, no, come on and play. I was like, son, I, I really. And then he said the funniest thing to me. He said, he said, dad, look, you just got to believe. Come on up here. You just got to believe. You just got to believe. And I thought to myself, oh, Disney has done its work, right? He's seen every Disney movie, and that's pretty much the message of every Disney movie, right? You just gotta believe. You just gotta believe. Of course, Disney's version of belief is not John's version of belief, right? Disney's version of belief is like the world's version of belief. It's believe in yourself, or believe in your dreams, or believe in your potential, or believe in your hard work, or believe in, in, in some impersonal sort of Fate that 's out there that 's just going to turn out right if you just believe in it that 's what he was trying to tell me. Dad, just just give it a try, just believe that it can work and i 'm thinking in the back of my head, son there 's not enough belief in the universe for this thing but but uh, but to, to end that story, I did play the game, and I did win by the way, um, I did win. I beat a five year old um, and I will never compete with anyone else in that game. And you will never see me play that game. But he enjoyed it. But it helped me to understand this idea that when John is talking about belief, he's not talking about what the world talks about when it says we need to believe. He's not talking about believing in yourself or your potential or your good works or believing in some sort of impersonal fate or or some dream that you have. He's saying if you want, the difference between the one who's condemned and not condemned is belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one object. For saving faith, Jesus Christ, and none other. None other. There's not many ways up this mountain that all take you to the pinnacle of God. You can follow any religion you want. Ultimately, they'll all just take you to the one God. No, that's, that's popular in our world, but it's not true. There's only one way to be saved and not condemned and not perish, and that is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that alone. It's the only kind of faith that saves. So when you boil it all down, it's really simple what he says here. You want to you not be condemned? You want to not perish? It's really quite simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in Him. If you, if, if you want to be saved right this moment, it doesn't matter who you are or where you're from or what your background is or how many bad things you've done. It doesn't matter. And none of those things are relevant. The only, things that ma- the only thing that matters right now is will you believe in Him? Will you believe in Jesus and be saved? You can do that right now. This moment, And if you will, the Bible tells us that your sins will be instantly forgiven. The slate will be wiped clean. The death sentence that currently hangs over your head, that sentence of judgment and condemnation, the absolute certainty that you will perish will absolutely be wiped clean. Your death sentence will be completely commuted. Christ's atoning death will be credited to your account. You'll receive in that very moment eternal life from God. Your relationship with your Creator, the one that you've rebelled against, will instantly change. You go from being His enemy to instantly being adopted into His family and being His child. And your eternal life is secured at that moment. The Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, takes up residence in your very being. Becomes the seal of your salvation. If you believe, all those things take place instantly. And you will not be condemned. That is the most important thing you could ever do. Most important thing you could ever do. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your eternity hangs in that balance. But that's not all John has to say to us. He tells us that there's a sin that's the worst sin you could ever commit. And it's the flip side of what he's just told us is the most important thing we could ever do. If the most important thing we could ever do is believe in the Lord Jesus, then what do you think the worst thing you could ever do is? It would be to reject Him. It's the sin of unbelief verse 18 and following but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of god what's the worst sin ever it's the sin of unbelief choosing not to believe in the lord jesus christ refusing to believe in jesus is the worst sin because it ultimately condemns it is the sin against the only remedy does that make sense if you think back to the illustration of Moses in the Old Testament and the bronze serpent being held up on the pole and everybody being bit by these poisonous snakes and their only hope of living is to look to the serpent, is symbolic of looking to God for their hope, for their salvation and for their rescue. And, and the, the, the worst sin they could possibly commit after being bitten by that poisonous snake is what? Is it to lie? No. It's to refuse to look. It's to refuse to look. Because to refuse to look means you die, and there's no opportunity for anything else after that, right? So when John says to, to us, whoever does not believe is already condemned, he's saying the worst thing you could possibly do, the worst sin you could commit is the sin of unbelief, to reject the Lord Jesus Christ, because it's a sin against the remedy. The only remedy to do that is to die, It's to die, It's to begin dying now. You know, John identifies for us a second category of people here, right? There are those who believe and those who what? Don't believe. Those who are condemned and those who are not condemned. How many categories of people? I know it's late into the sermon here. How many categories of people are there, people? Two categories of people. Not three, not four, not anywhere else. Those who are believing... And those who don't perish, and those who are not believing, and who do perish. That is, that is the case in John's day, it's the case in our day. It's, a category, it's the only categories available to those of you who are here in this room. And everybody that you know or navigate with in the world belongs to one or the other category. Those who believe, those who are believing, those who are not. Those who are perishing, those who are not. Only two categories of people, and everybody fits into one or the other. If you're here today, you fit one or the other. There is no other category of people. Now, unbelief—that is, those who don't believe—comes in a variety of flavors, kind of like ice cream. There's there's the aggressive sort of forms of unbelief. You've seen that probably, right? Those who just reject the message outright. They're vocal about their rejection. Maybe even they persecute the truth. Maybe they even speak out against it. You don't have to look too very far in our culture to find examples of that, right? Um, so there's this aggressive sort of sort of active. Uh, unbelief but there's also a more passive kind of unbelief isn't there we call it apathy or indifference people who aren't really actively opposing christ they just don't believe him maybe they're just indifferent maybe they're just apathetic at, it at the moment maybe it just doesn't seem very important to them it's still unbelief you see there's only two categories there's not like belief unbelief and people who are deciding or people who are waiting Or people who are thinking about it. There's only two. People who are believing and people who are not. Sometimes people think just because they don't outright actively reject Christ or or aggressively persecute believers of the gospel that somehow they're okay. No, you're not okay unless you believed. You fit in that category of unbelief. Now it's important to note here that John's not talking about somebody who has the experience of a passing moment where they have some doubts or where for a passing moment they, 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 they're, they're not sure about something. He's not talking about that. He changes the tense of the verb and it indicates to us from the perfect tense that he's talking about people who have already made a decision to not believe. They have, they have, they have decided not to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They've made their decision. They've made their choice. They've chosen to reject Christ. That person, he says, is condemned already. Leon Morris, a commentator, says this about that. He says that person no longer keeps open the possibility that Jesus might be the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Unbelief is the atmosphere in which he lives. He knows of Christianity as a way of life some people choose, but for him it's irrelevant. He knows that Christians talk about faith, but for him it's, it's just a word. He's not really interested. And he certainly doesn't know what it is to trust in the sense in which Christians trust Christ. That for him is totally unknown territory. He lives in unbelief, continuing unbelief, and he wants nothing else. Accordingly, he gets nothing else. That person, John says, is condemned already. You remember in Pastor Frank's message, I know you remember it all. He he reminded us that, that what John said, that Christ didn't come in his first coming to condemn the world, but to do what? but that the world might be saved through Him. Yeah, Christ didn't come looking around saying, you're condemned, you're condemned, you're condemned. No, John says Christ didn't need to do that because those who were condemned were what? They're condemned already. They're condemned already. They've already condemned themselves by refusing to believe and rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not like Christ came to condemn them at His coming. They're already condemned. They've chosen darkness rather than light, He's going to tell us in just a moment. And in doing so, they've condemned themselves. There's an old rhyme written of Judas Iscariot by C. H. Wright in his book on the Gospel of John, and it's a little rhyme and it's real simple, but it's quite profound. Where he says this: "Still, as of old, man by himself is priced for thirty pieces. Judas sold himself, not Christ." I might have to read that a couple of times to get the, the breadth of it, but he's exactly right. What did Judas do when he, when he betrayed the Lord Jesus? Did he sell Christ? No. Isaiah had told us centuries before that Christ would come and that he would be arrested and that he'd be crucified and that he'd be killed. That was God's plan all, from all along. That is already in the works. Judas didn't make any of that happen, did he? The only thing Judas sold was his self. In his unbelief, he condemned his own soul. what happened he's already condemned and that's what's going on in our culture as well you you know people in your life that are like this you know people who are believers who are believing in the Lord Jesus they're not condemned but you also know people who are not believing and it's not a matter of will they be condemned they are already condemned by choosing to reject the Lord Jesus they are condemned already and what's going to happen at the end of time when they stand before the judgment is a condemnation that's already been passed will simply be made public and eternal already condemned so there's only one criteria for condemnation belief or unbelief that's the only issue here if somebody in this place ends up going to hell you go there and you're going to be sent there not for something you did but for something you did not do you did not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ you say well why would anybody reject this why would anybody do that why would any sane human being reject the Lord Jesus Christ if the eternal Condemnation or lack thereof is hanging in the balance. Why would somebody do such a, a foolish and stupid thing? He tells us in verse 19 why. He answers the question. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Get this. People love the darkness rather than the light. Why do people reject Jesus? Because they love darkness. They love darkness rather than the light. He reverts back to the illustration he used in chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. You remember where he said, In him, Jesus was the life, and that life was what? The light of men. And he talks about the light of Jesus doing what? Shining out into the darkness. It's a picture of a dark world, living in moral depravity and sin. And Christ comes along, and he shines the light of his moral purity and his holiness and his glory and his truth into the midst of all of that darkness, exposing reality for what it is. And he uses that same illustration. He reverts back to it here in chapter three when he says, "This the light. Christ has come into the world, and he shines on. He's shown himself on people, and people have chosen to reject him, and they've chosen to reject him. Why? Because they love the darkness rather than the light. Because they love their sin. They love. They love living for themselves. They love the pleasure that sin brings." They hate being exposed in their deeds. And so they reject Christ. That's what he tells us. Well, why in the world would people do that? Why in the world would people love darkness rather than the light? Why would they do that? It's not because they're ignorant. It's not because they're apathetic. It's not because they're just busy or they're just deceived. They love... They reject the truth because they love their darkness. But why... Uh, second part of verse 19 and verse 20. They do it. Why? Because their deeds are evil or their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to the light. Why? Lest his works should be exposed. Right? Why do people love darkness rather than the light? Why do they love darkness rather than life? Because they live in... In ways that are evil. They live sinful lives. And you don't. when you're living a sinful life, you don't want to come to the light because the light exposes your sin for everyone to see. And it's humiliating. And who wants to be exposed in their sin? And so they scurry like bugs back to the darkness and run away from the light. You ever picked up a rock like in your yard, you know, when you're doing work out there? And you pick it up and underneath that in the darkness are bugs and, you know, you flip it over and they just do what? They just scurry and they go for some other dark place to hide. They don't want to be exposed. They're afraid to be exposed. You might squish them. That's what I do. I hate bugs. I hate them. John is saying people are like that. People live self absorbed, self consumed, sinful, rebellious lives. And they know that. They know it. God has written His law on their hearts even though they reject Him. They know when they put their head on the pillow at night that they are living in rebellion against their Creator. They know that. Whether they'll admit it or not, they know it. And they love that darkness rather than the light. And they they hate the light because the light exposes that and they don't want to be seen. So when they get around the Word of God or they get around a believer who's shining the light of Christ toward them, they scurry like bugs for some dark place to go. To get away from the light because they can't stand it. Don't want to be exposed because their deeds are evil. They hate the light because it exposes them for what they are. Rebels. Selfish, rebellious creatures who run away from their creator. You want to know why there's so much evil in our culture and in the world around us? You look at the news and you see horrible things happening. You say, why does all this happen? It's a simple answer. John gives it to us because people love darkness. Why is there so much evil? Because people love sin. Why do people kill? Because they love it. Why do people lie? Because they love it. Why do people commit all sorts of forms of of, of, of sexual perversion? Because they love darkness rather than the light. That's why they do it. They love it. They enjoy it. They embrace it. It's part of who they are. And why is it the flip side? That they hate the gospel of Jesus Christ? Why is it that the world wants to shut up the church? Why is it that the world is, in, is consistently, particularly in our culture now, I mean, it's worse in other places, but here you see it increasing. Why is it there's increasing pressure in our culture for people like me and you to shut up about the gospel of Jesus Christ and to keep it within the walls of our church and not dare speak it out there? Why is that pressure increasing? Because people hate the light. They love their darkness because their deeds are evil and they hate the light. And they want to shut the light up any way they can. And so they'll legislate ways to try and do that. They'll redefine darkness as light, and light as darkness. Good as evil, and evil as good. And call you a fool for believing it's wrong. Or call you a hater. That's what's going on in the world. But John says it's not the same for believers. Verse 21. Whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. See, unbelievers are perishing And they're going to be condemned And they hate the light And they're repulsed by the light And they run from the light Because they're terrified Absolutely terrified That it's going to expose their deeds Their evil deeds But see that other category of people I hope it's every one of you in this room People who are believing in the Lord Jesus Christ They don't run from the light You don't hate the light You are drawn to it You're drawn to it, aren't you? You know it exposes you. But you're drawn to it. Why? Because you're not afraid. Because you're not afraid of the light. Because you love the light. You you love the light and you want to honor the light and you know you're imperfect and you know when you sit in the sunlight of the glory and holiness and truth of Christ it exposes those deep parts of who you are that are still in rebellion against Him and you want those things exposed so you can see them and do battle in those areas so that you might look more like Christ. You ever grown plants? I, I, I'm terrified to even speak about plants with Tom Johnson in the room because I'm ignorant and he is a genius. But... I know this about plants, Tom, because I've had some. I've killed a lot, but I've had some live. And I know this. The plants that I have, whatever the source of sunlight is, they'll grow towards that. Am I right in saying that? Is that how it works in general out at Magnolia Plantation? That's about right. They grow toward the light, don't they? They're not repelled from it. They grow toward it. And as they, as they grow toward it it, it, it enlivens them, it nourishes them, and it grows them up. And that's how believers are. That's the difference. See, unbelievers are terrified of the exposure of the light, and they run from it, and they hate it. But believers, oh, we're drawn to the light of Christ. We love Christ. We know that He exposes our imperfections, but we want to be exposed because we know in that exposure, we grow and we thrive in Him. Right? I trust that's why you came here this morning. Because you wanted the light of Christ to shine into your hearts And to help you to see areas that need work. That you might begin to do battle in those areas. And grow in Him. That's what believers are like. They're not afraid of the exposure. Why are we not afraid of exposure? Because we've already been exposed. We've already admitted that we're sinners who rebelled against our Lord. What's left to expose? Christ has forgiven our sin every evil and dark thing for which we're embarrassed and humiliated has been nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. His blood has covered it. We're forgiven and made whole. And we understand that any, any lingering imperfection in our life does not ultimately condemn our soul because Christ has redeemed us. It's simply a matter of growing in Him. So we're not afraid. See, we're not afraid. Because we're secure. Our sins have already been exposed. We want, to, we want any lingering sin to be exposed so we can kill it. That's what we want. And it's not because our lives are perfect, right? Any of you out there perfect this morning? Find another church, because we're a bunch of imperfect people here. No, John makes this clear. It's not that their lives are perfect. It's not, like, it's, not, it's, not what, it's not like, oh, there's a light of Christ. Let me get in it so everybody can see how holy I am. That's not the issue, is it? He says, no, they, they're drawn to the light. Why are they drawn to the light? They're drawn to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their works have been carried out in their own strength. No, their works have been carried out in God. Here, I'm drawn to the light because you can see that there's anything good in me. It's because of what Christ has done in me. It's because, of, it's because, it's because God is in me and I'm in Him. That's the only reason there's anything good to look at in the light. And that brings Him glory. So I want it to be seen. So that pretty much ends our, our look at this text today. We've been told what the most important thing in the world to do is and what the worst sin in the world you could ever commit is. One is belief and the other is unbelief. And this morning, just to make it really clear, either you're a plant that's growing toward the light because you believed in the Lord Jesus or you're an insect who scurries away from the light because you don't want to be exposed in your unbelief. Which one are you this morning? All of us fit one category or the other, believer, unbeliever, condemned, not condemned. If you're here today rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to feel the weight of that. You need to feel the weight of that right now. You need to understand that your eternity hangs in the balance. And it hangs in the balance not because of anything in your past, but because of what you're doing right now, rejecting Jesus and not believing in Him. And that can all change in this very moment if you will simply believe in the Lord Jesus Christ Believe in Him Believe in Him this morning and be saved Won't you? Let's pray Lord Jesus, we, are, we marvel We marvel at Your way of salvation We marvel at the plan that You've put together For redeeming rebellious sinners like us We marvel That You have not made a way that's difficult For which we have to climb some mountain to get in You've not made a way for which we have to compete with other people to try and win our way in. No, you've loved us and you've given your Son on the cross that we might just look to Him in belief and not be condemned. There's a way for every condemned sinner in this world, in this room, to not ultimately be condemned. Simply believing in you. Trusting in you. And I pray, Lord, if there be someone in this place this morning who finds themselves in that category and only you can show them that, I pray that you'd show them. And that in this very moment they would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That they would place their trust in you. They would entrust themselves to you like I sat in that chair a moment ago. Putting the whole weight of their spiritual being on you. Trusting that you'll hold them up. And that your sacrifice will be sufficient to cover their sin that they would find in that very moment the rush of eternal life flowing into their heart and soul. You do Your work in us this morning, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. It could be that You, be that You, be that You, be that You, be that You.